Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Happy Friday, everyone. It is another installment of the First Gen Hunter podcast presented by Spartan Forge. Um, here again with Mr. Paul Sarita. And uh, Paul is a whitetail nut like myself. Um, we were just talking sheds, of course, right before <laughs> we started recording this one. Paul sent me some uh, pictures of some sheds that he's had the privilege of uh, scooping up over the years and um, uh, it's something we're both passionate about. Uh, I love seeing what, what Paul gets, you know, pulls out of the woods every year. You got a pretty good year last year. If I remember right, you had like, yes. did you have a day where you found like seven in one day or something like that? Yep. Over well, last hour of light and then the next morning, same area. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a quick after work hike or something. That's what it was. Exactly what it was. Yep, those are the best, man. Those, I you know, I had an interesting thought today. If you think about all your sheds that you found in your life, would you? So sometimes you can, I would say on average, like the average shed hunter, and I've said this a lot of times, probably one shed every ten miles. Guys like yourself and myself who go after it pretty hard, we're probably more, we probably average out, you know, from the early season part where you're not finding as many sheds to like April where you're finding lots of sheds because they're all on the ground at that point. Right. We probably, we probably find a shed on average over the whole season every five miles of, of hiking. But then there's those times where it's like, you just walk into the mother load and it's every 200 yards you're finding mm-hmm. a shed. Now, those moments are so fun. Like like when you trip into a honey hole, that is like one of your best days period and and I mean, like that's up there with the feeling of when you just shoot an awesome buck. Oh, you yeah. know? But then there's the days where, like last year, I think between my 11th and 12th shed, or maybe it was my 12th and 13th, I went like, I don't know, probably close to 15 miles. And, I mean, I had good places to look. It was just I, they're, sometimes they're not there you're not, or you're not on the right line or whatever, you know. And That's I it. was getting frustrated, man. And so then – would you rather then have it so that you could know that every, like, maybe we'll go a, a number in between five and ten, every seven and a half miles, you're guaranteed a shed? Would you rather have that? Or would you rather say, nope, some days I'm going to go 15 miles and I'm not going to find a thing, but I know that I'm still probably going to have, you know, that I, I will still get, you know, every once in a blue moon that stumble into a honey hole and i come out with 10 of them would you rather have that situation or would you rather have the guarantee every seven and a half miles you got a shed i like the honey hole 
You like I like finding one? like a certain spots I like to go to every year, and they seem to have one or two. Then I will walk 15 miles on public land and not find one. Yeah. Then see, like starting like next week, I'll start hitting public spots <clears> once a week. Mm-hmm. But my my private, I'm not hitting that till March because I just want all those deer just to sit in my property and eat the food plots and yep. got their antlers right there for me and no disturbance. Yep, yep. I think that's. Although I will, I will say this: like there are some advantages to um, getting out even on private land early. And I know people worry about bouncing deer onto neighboring property and then mm-hmm. they shed over there, which that's a realistic fear. Um, but uh, rodent chew and mm-hmm. shed poaching. And, um, also just the changing landscape between now and, and the end, you know, later in the season can sometimes be factors too, you know? So sometimes it's kind of fun to, to hit a spot, a good spot early and then wait a month and hit it again. Um, I think that's not a bad approach either, but. And uh, and my cameras tell me what I'm seeing on private, you know? Yeah. Yep. That's a good point. Yeah. You do use a lot of cameras to Mm -hmm. uh your advantage um so that's yeah that's a smart move well here we are we're talking sheds it's on our brain it's Mm -hmm. uh it's shed season really is uh the earliest days of shed season but it is shed season nonetheless and i think we're both just getting jacked to get out there it'd be fun to do a shed hunt together sometime uh last year at the deer classic we were talking about this spot that we really want to hit um, I think somebody's <laughs> building a house right next to it, though. They right are. There. <clears throat> it's a shame. But That's a shame. Maybe we need to knock on their door when they're done. Okay. Yeah, that's right. But I, I bet you know what you know what though. I bet you that. I bet you it tanks that spot. So well, I'll just say this: I went and knocked on the landowner's door years ago. Just driving by, I would see a lot of deer out there, and it just looked like that's a good spot. You know, mm-hmm. it had basically everything tons of thermal cover it's got southern some good southern exposure it's got um food on well immediately joint adjoining two sides um it and uh yeah it was just it was close to other big habitat areas so i went and knocked on the door and there was no less than 30 sheds in a pile on the porch and nobody lived in the house anymore, as best as I could tell. Right. And so it just, like, confirmed, yep, that place is loaded. Well, now someone's building a house right next to that block of habitat. And I just think that that is always a shame because, you know, you see people do it all the time. They're like, oh, I love being out in the woods. I love hunting over here. I'm going to build a house right back here and then i'm gonna clear out a spot in the middle of the timber here i'm gonna that build drives me nuts yeah you just killed your hunting opportunities there because when um, we're talking about that new house i would say that is a sanctuary for somebody yep yep or was <laughs> yep it'll and there'll still be some deer in there but oh, that, yeah. that was an absolute honey hole you i mean to have gotten to go in there and i left the note asking for permission i knocked on the door two or three times nobody was ever around Somebody was farming out there, I could tell, but like there just there was never anybody to talk to, and oh, man, what it what could have been in those in that spot, man. But maybe someday, maybe we we can 
we can uh, try and narrow it down who who to ask and we can get in there but i'm getting the itch man it'd be fun to go shed hunting together sometime yeah um but that that is a to be determined date at this point but tonight that's not that's not going to be our main focus it's always going to be part of the focus here on this podcast this is the unofficial shed hunting podcast out there but um uh we're going to first of all just kind of get into what paul has you know what his last season has been but also kind of his life as an outdoorsman and i think a good spot to start out would just be um you're it's like a miracle that you're here having this conversation that's um, very true there were a lot of people who were in paul's uh circumstance what was that? Uh, that was in 2020, wasn't it? That was, yep. That was 2020. Good old, COVID, good old COVID. Yep. And I caught it here at work. Um, sitting between two guys. We were binge watching alone. Go figure, an outdoor show. Yep. And the next day after we got off shift, the two guys I was sitting next to tested positive on their own. <laughs> Oh man! And so the, our next shift day, coming to work. All right, everybody, go to this doctor's office. We're all getting tested. Mm-hmm. Seven of us tested positive, and still early on COVID. Not a lot was known before vaccines, and so all right, you're sick. So the other shift basically had to cover our shift as well, and they weren't nobody over there was sick at the time, and. I waited. I was doing, felt like I was doing okay. And finally, one day, my wife's like, I think you need to go to the doctor. I'm like, nah. Looked on my phone. I Googled it. CDC says I'm okay. Really, I wasn't. I had a fever that wouldn't break. I was taking Tylenol too often. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, like the next day, I think she came in and said, You're going to the hospital. Threw my clothes at me. She goes, Am I driving you? Or are you calling the ambulance? I said, You're driving me. Go to the local ER, like, and they take my stats, and you know, in your blood level, your oxygenation should be one hundred percent. I was thirty four percent. Oh, whoa! I even, as a paramedic, do not get patients that I see that low. Usually, somebody in the seventies or eighties is struggling to breathe as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, my admission papers that day said walking respiratory rest. And they said I was less than a day from less than a day from dying at home. Oh my goodness, man! So um, they're doing high flow oxygen on me. They're giving me certain, some meds, and I, they send me to the ICU that night. I spend five days at the local hospital, and day five comes. I just get done eating lunch. I'm eating a burger, hospital food, not the best, but hey, I was eating. Yeah. Doctor comes in right after I get done eating. Hey, I think I need to intubate you. Said, I understand. Do what you need to do. I felt okay. I was texting people, calling, you know, not calling because I had the mask on, but mm-hmm. texting people. Said, please just please text my wife and explain to her what's going on. And next thing I knew, I woke up that night about six hours later. I was in Iowa City in their ICU. I'd been flown by life flight there, and then I had ECMO put in. An ECMO, a lot of people don't know what that is. It helps breathe, helps your heart work and uh, breathe for your lungs, along with being on a respirator. And so that started my 
Iowa City journey. I was in Iowa City for a total of 57 days. Oh, man. 62 days total between the two hospitals. So after being intubated for two weeks, they cracked me, did the put the breathing tube in my neck, mm-hmm. and then a feeding tube. Still got the ECMO lines going through my thigh. And like week three, they ended up putting another one in my neck. So I got a pretty scar there. Everybody thinks a hickey, but it's a scar. Mm-hmm. Um, so the week of the derecho. Okay. Um, my wife. So it was about three weeks from my initial stay, two and a half weeks until I actually got to see my wife. From the time I seen her at the ER when she dropped me off. So were you well, like was, were you like sedated and unconscious you, for most of those days? That's the thing. They actually kept me awake and actually doing PT wow. every day, and I think that's what helped with my recovery. Mm-hmm. Plus, being a forty-year-old guy at the time, fairly healthy firefighter. Yeah. Um. So the week of derecho, my mom comes up the day of the derecho. I'm cl- complaining about my belly hurting a little bit. My wife comes in the next day and it's swollen about four more inches from the day before. Because you're mm-hmm. only allowed one visitor a day for four hours mm-hmm. during COVID. Um, so they take me down for a scan. They're just like, oh, yeah, I didn't notice. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> I love my nurses, don't get me wrong. But they just missed that part. And as soon as I got back from the scan into my room, they rushed me to surgery. I had seven internal bleeds in my stomach. Oh, my God. From one of the medicines I was on. And got all seven of those fixed. So after I got those fixed, and that next week I ended up with getting nine units of blood. Holy cow. Yeah, so I was always really healthy, had great blood. Now I notice I get a little sicker easier, and I don't recover as quick as I did. Hmm. But so after um, the total of 37 days in the ICU, I went to recovery, pulling tubes off. I was, well, I skipped a part there. Right after the duration, after my stomach bleed, they started paperwork to start a double lung transplant. Holy cow, man. That scared the living daylights out of me. And I'm like, they only, they said, you know, they only last for two to 10 years before you pass. I'm like, my kids won't even graduate high school till 10 years down the road. And I think I wrote that as a mental game for me. I was like, I need to work on this. I need to get stronger. And I pulled out of it. So they got, they were able to cancel the paperwork. And I didn't need the double lung transplant. Mm. So we get to recover eventually. Eventually, we spent 20 days in there. And then they're like trying to find a facility for me to go to. My wife's a stay at home wife. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no. She'd gone to nursing school, just didn't quite finish. So she understands it all. Mm-hmm. And she goes, no, I want to take him home with me. I don't want him in a facility. And I think that was great because I get home, I'm on oxygen. But I didn't realize how weak I'd gotten. So it took everything I had in my power to hold a half gallon of milk. Mm. Took both hands and just like, this is what, four pounds? Mm. And to unload the dishwasher, take me 15, 20 minutes because I had to sit down and take a break. My mailbox is 60 yards from my back door. I'd walk halfway. I'd sit down on my driveway for five minutes, walk up my mailbox, sit down, walk halfway back, sit down. And so after a couple of weeks there, and 
week or two, I'd seen a commercial for like a portable oxygen device. Mm-hmm. I said, that's what I want. And so we got it and got approved to work comp stuff because this is all work comp because it happened here at work. Oh, yeah. And I'm thankful for that because I didn't lose time, vacation, always getting paid. So that was a blessing. Yeah, that is a blessing for sure. And so that led me into hunting season. And eventually my wife took me into deer seat, took me out deer hunting with her. We had a blind. She tried me right out to the blind, throw my oxygen bottles in there, my portable, portable oxygen device, and I'd hunt with her. And then after a couple weeks later in the season, I bought a crossbow. a boy. And, you know, it was the only thing I could use. I couldn't draw my bow yep. back. Yep. And that's why they and that's why they make that available, you know. Absolutely. And Halloween night, we go to my best spot. I'm like, honey, you sit in this stand. Drive me back to my back stand. I has two stands on the property. Mm-hmm. And my buddy had a four wheeler. He let us borrow. I climbed twenty foot up on just a ladder stick. Not an actual ladder stand. It was one of those skinny sticks. Yep. Yep. And I have two portable auction bottles with me i hung those on the back of the stand and i sat in the front of the stand and she drove off and went and got in her stand and i'm watching this nice 120 inch buck play around on the other side of the fence but about 40 yards away i'm like he hops the fence i'm shooting him just because of the situation that's right and he, he wanders off kind of walking towards my wife down the fence line there and a half hour later she texts me just shot one <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm going to finish hunting. And I had no ride because there's no way I could walk that far <laughs> yeah. yet. And all of a sudden I hear four wheelers going when she had texted my buddy and he's coming down to get it because she watched it drop 40 yards from her. And That's awesome. Of a stand that I hadn't shot a buck out of over a scrape that I've been trying to hunt for the last 10 years and she's able to do it. I'm like, that woman, great job. Yep. So I'm gutting the buck for her and I'm on the auction and my buddy's like, because he's my, actually my boss here at work. He's like, are you okay? Can you handle this? I don't want you passing out on me down here. Yeah. So it was the outdoors is what really got me going. Just going out hiking, walking, hunting. And after that, I eventually was able to start driving again on my own because off all my meds, just on oxygen. Mm-hmm. And that was my drive. Then shed season, I wore that portable oxygen thing around. Uh, and... Found sheds with that. I got pictures of me holding sheds in my oxygen. That's crazy, man. Good work. That was my PT because for some reason the paperwork didn't get filed right and the work comp denied my physical therapy. So wow. being in the outdoors, just hiking our little 10 acres that we have out in the country and my hill in my yard, and there's all self-determination to get back and be healthy. Yeah. So I ended up spending seven and a half months on oxygen after I got out of the hospital. And then after that, I was able to actually come back to work and start doing paperwork, desk job type deal. And hmm. It was so great to be back in the firehouse after, you know, that was about nine and a half months from the time I got sick to the time I got back in there. Sure. My wife had taken me a couple of times. I stopped in when I started driving just to say hi to the guys. And mm-hmm. We didn't always come back to work or not. I was actually, the week I got released to come back to at least do light duty. I started filling out my medical retirement paperwork. Mm. So again, got to stretch that, slide that to the side. And, and mm. this, a year ago, August, 25 months after I got sick, I finally got back to full duty. 
Wow. Passing physical agility test for the fire department. Um, I only use about 74, 75% of the lungs still. Um, mm. 10%, 10% is dead and gone, they said. Mm. But my biggest thing is I have so much scarring from all the issues I had going on in there yeah. that I don't get the good oxygen exchanges. So that sure. slows me down a little bit. I can do four or five flights of stairs, but when I get up there, I get, when I get up to the top, I guess take a break and give me a minute. And so, yeah. but even last week, I went and fought a basement fire, had no issues, and things were good. So, yeah, that's great, man. And it's great to hear that you're doing so much better. And man, I bet that was a really scary time for you and your family. And, but a testament, so. testament to your mm-hmm. toughness, you know, and, and keeping fighting and, and, uh, man, I'm sure it, it just felt hopeless there a lot of times. And it was and the doctors even said that even last week at my biannual checkup that I'm a miracle. And I hate hearing people say that. I don't want to take the knowledge, but yeah, I really am. I mm-hmm. shouldn't be here. You know, we don't know if we're playing a funeral or planning what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you got a second chance, right? Very much uh, so. And every day is a blessing. Yep. That's right. Yep. God's not done with you. He's, he's got, he's got more things for you. And, and, um, man, what a, you know, at that time I remember, so I remember you trying to remember when you start, we started following each other on Instagram. I I think it was, it maybe a little I don't remember. It must have been after you got sick because I, I launched First Gen Hunter in June of 2020. Okay, you, I think I found you shortly after that. I was in the hospital in July of 2020. That's, so. Okay, well, yeah, maybe. May, yeah, so maybe. Maybe the next summer we truly started following each other. But. Yeah, well, I remember seeing you post. You, I think you were out ice fishing, and I saw you were. Oh, yeah, I was in that with oxygen, too, yeah. Yep, I remember seeing that post with you on oxygen. I'm like, what is going on? He looks like a young, healthy guy. I thought, at first, I thought there's just no way that's COVID that did that to you. Not that I, you know, <laughs> was one of those people who denied that. My right. wife was an ICU nurse um, at one of the major hospitals in the area where you and I lived, and right. and uh, so I, I knew it was a real deal thing. But, I, like, it was just – shocking to me that a guy your age and health would be would be that affected by by covid you know well, i thought me the word well I've, i figured you had like lung cancer or something i thought well, yeah my job you know it's a high probability right right and i was like you know i just thought that that was and then i i think uh my cousin brian uh was the one who told me about your circumstance and uh, this is like pretty eye opening to see somebody who's not much different than me in age, right? Fighting that battle like that. So, man, I'm glad you pulled through, and and uh, it's awesome too to hear how hunting, you know, helped with the healing process. Hundred percent. I mean, the outdoors is my life, so that's why I did it. Was and that about- was that a real drive to like? I mean, obviously your kids, your wife, your you you want to stick around for them and be healthy for them, but absolutely is a drive because that's my life you know i take my mm-hmm. six weeks of vacation october november and mm. maybe a week during the summer for the kids but the rest is for me <laughs> yeah you're doing all that hunting the rut and and getting out mm-hmm. there and so i'm guessing you must have grown up hunting huh i grew up well 
Um, my stepdad, which came my life when I was three, he was a pheasant hunter. He was okay. a deer hunter in his younger days, but um, not as everyone I knew him. He had injured mm-hmm. one deer and never found it, and he stopped deer hunting that day. He said, "Sure, kind of interesting." He lived down in Colorado at the time, mm-hmm. and but I grew up pheasant hunting since I was five. I was the dog. <laughs> I go bust all the piles and fetch the pheasants when he shot them, and took hunter safety when I was eleven. Shot my first uh pheasant when I was twelve on a fence wow. line, and you, he made me use a single shot sixteen gauge until I shot my first one. Wow! But for deer hunting, um, my real dad, which is still my life till he just passed two two years ago, mm, he never that. he didn't believe in hunting, and he owned three hundred acres. Really? Prime woods and stuff in Iowa. Oh. <laughs> and I'm always like, can I hunt? Can I hunt? No. Um, so, in my side of the family, my bloodline, I'm truly a first gen hunter. Wow. So, yeah. that's cool. So, did you ever like go out there and shed hunt his place? Would he, was he okay with you doing that? He, he would let me do that. I found a few here and there, but I think he had a lot of trespassing going on. Sure. So, he already had a bad taste for hunters, I guess, in that area. And yep. Yep, that's understandable. That was long before trail cameras, and mm-hmm. so. yeah. So he got to a point during Iowa gun season, he'd just walk his fence line all day long, back and forth, just to keep people out of there. Mm-hmm. Yep, so. I don't blame him. I don't blame him one bit. That's a that's a bitter pill when people are trespassing and and all yeah. that. But well, that's awesome, man. You had some experience, but also had to kind of figure some things out on your own as far as deer hunting goes. So when did you get that? When did you get bit by deer hunting? Um, age 15, my buddy's like, just buy a tag, an Illinois gun tag. All right. So I did. Bought a lat- cheap ladder stand, 12-footer from Walmart. Um, it was the first Friday of Illinois gun season already. Mm-hmm. Not to my neighbor's door, and he was like, yeah, sure, go pull one up. Went put the stand up that Friday afternoon. So we're already did day one. Yeah. Next morning I wake up and go out and I woke up, sun was already up. Walked back <laughs> to my stand. This you know, only 10, 15 minutes of shooting time, but yeah. Walked back to my stand back there and five minutes later I shot button buck. Wow. I'm like, well, this is easy. <laughs> and you were hooked. Oh yeah. Well, from there, it took seven years to take on my next deer after oh, that. Wow. I was like, oh. This sucks. It's hard. <laughs> a lot harder than you thought. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. That's a good first gen hunter experience right there. I love the mm-hmm. the late arrival and the the uh, you know the beginner's luck part of it. That's all. It's all. Yeah. I waited like five minutes to go track him. Didn't know any better. Didn't know how to gut him, so I just put him on my shoulders and carried him home. <laughs> that's awesome, man. So uh, from from your early days of hunting, you uh, you know hunted into your adult years, but you also mm-hmm. are a combat veteran, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, appreciate your service. How many how many tours did you do, and where? I at? just got to do one, and I spent my time in Baghdad. In Baghdad. Yep. yep. So what year would that have been? I was there in 05. 05? Okay. Yep. Yep. There in December of '04, and get back January of '06. So. Okay. Whole year was there. Yeah. Yep. My again, my cousin Brian, who you know well, uh, he was he was over there. Um, I think he did three tours, didn't he? Yeah, something like that. I know he was there pretty early too. I think you're the year right before me. Yeah, he was so, there on the uh, initial invasion. Um, that's, yeah. In '03, mm-hmm. and then uh, 
I think he went back. Must have been. 06. I'm not sure the other years. He, he, maybe 04 and 05 maybe is when he went back there, something like that. Maybe. But, um, but yeah, that, you know, I think that's a, that's something that gets forgotten in our society is like you and Brian's generation, like when you guys were going into the military, I mean, yes, September 11 would have, let's see here. That probably, did that happen after you were already in the military? Or did that yeah, I joined right? in 97. Oh, 97. So you were already in. I think Brian graduated in, I think he graduated high school in 01. So yeah, he would have just been in for a few months when mm-hmm. when that happened. And that instantly took you guys, that whole generation of guys, the old millennial um young Gen Xers and uh instantly put you guys in war. And yep, sure and uh um you know the experiences that your age group has is um very different from most people. I think probably the only group that that I mean of course there's some World War Two guys, not many, but there's there's some left still alive and uh, but a lot of the Vietnam guys and yep. maybe some of the Korean War guys and Gulf War guys, but but uh but really as far as the scale, the size and the duration, you know, it's 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 uh the veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan that really that really that shaped your young your younger adult years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely changed things. And I imagine uh you probably had to take from a hunting standpoint quite a break from hunting, right? Yeah, the whole year that I was gone. And we knew we were coming home the early part of January. So me and a buddy applied for some public land tags nearby. Okay. Knew we were going to be able to hunt the late antlerous season. Mm-hmm. And so we got back for that very last weekend, the last three days of Illinois guns late antler season, trying around on some public land, just walking. We never dig anything, but hey, we had felt, fun. Felt good to have some sense of normal back and be out hunting. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. We we're home less than a week and that happened. And so I was like, hey, got to get out. Yep. Yep. So, well, really appreciate you for your your service, both to the community as a firefighter and paramedic, but then, of course, as a uh, veteran, too. And, uh, you know, I think that speaks to the quality of person you are, uh, the, all the ways that you've continued to serve. You know, that's 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 a big deal. So a sincere thank you for me and, and uh, I'm sure from all the listeners here, too. But. Uh, so get out of the military. What, uh, how many years did you do in the military? I did nine years. Nine years? It's National Guard, but you know, it's on the year active duty, so. Sure. Yep. And, uh, then you got out and, uh, did you just, as soon as you got out, did you really hit hunting hard again? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, for a while there, I like stopped watching all hunting shows and reading magazines and. Yeah, I picked it back up about 2010, 2011. Like, it's time to get serious about hunting, and it's really became my life since then. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And have you, it seems like you, did you buy some uh, hunting ground yourself? 
I'm actually in the process of buying the land I've been hunting for the past seven years. Oh, okay. Very um, good. I call yeah. it my land already because the owner's never seen it. He inherited it. And I met, met called him up, and my father-in-law helped me because he wanted to do this, the hay on the ground. And Sure. So I got to know the owner, and, um, yeah, he was on the East Coast. And we came up a year ago with a, a final purchase price to get me so I could save up what I needed for my down payment. And so this summer, early fall, it will be in my name. That's awesome, man. Congrats. That's that's huge. It is awesome. So so how has that process been? Has it been easier than you thought to go through all that or um, not bad so far. The real test will be is the bank happy with the amount of money I think I need saved. Mm-hmm. And finding the hardest part right now is really finding the bank. So I'm looking forward to Illinois Deer Classic, Iowa Deer Classic and talking to the companies that are there that specialize in land. Sure. And get all this stuff finalized and get it ready for when I'm ready to pull the trigger on that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A great resource out there is Jake Hofer's podcast, the land podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Jake's been on this podcast and I've been on, on his show. He's a and, great dude. Oh yeah. Awesome guy. And he knows this stuff inside and out. So I'm sure if you reached out to him, he would, uh, he'd be happy to help you to point you in the right I direction. Between him and Jake Bur- or Chase Burns. I'll have That's right. Chase. Good yep. Chase could help you too. I'm sure he's, mm-hmm. he's, uh, he's doing really well there with land guys. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually going to see Chase here in a few, well, maybe more like a month, a little less than a month. Going to record a podcast for work with him, but, nice. but, um, yeah, Chase is a great guy as well. So some great resources there. And that's another perk to being a part of the hunting community is we help each other out in that way, you know? And, uh, and, you know, I think that's a little bit different than what a lot of other communities, you know, might, might be used to. So, but so, uh, you you buying your own piece? You're gonna do some uh, habitat improvement work out there once you need a lot of habitat done. I just didn't want to put the money into it until I knew it was my land. Yep, absolutely. I didn't want to leave it turnkey in case I lost it. And right. Yep. So I've been drawing up maps, and you know, I, my original plan was switchgrass, but then I was talking to some other guys that were talking about bees and the natural habitat. I'm like, oh. So you'll hey, looking both ways now. Yep. You'll be, you'll be glad you did it that way. Um, you know, uh, I was, I think I was telling you earlier, I was on a podcast with Pierce Nels, uh, the mm-hmm. Wisconsin sportsman's podcast. And, you know, as you know, I, I grow and, and sell all the, those species that we we're just talking about there. And when you look at, you know, our States, Illinois and Iowa, they're, they're two tall grass prairie states historically. Of course, uh, a lot of timber um, in different parts of both states, even historically so, um, uh, especially in the county where you're hunting. Um, that area has always been a, as at least to my understanding, has always been a more heavily timbered area because of its proximity to the Mississippi River, the Rock River, the, uh, right. the Edwards River, the... You know, there's a lot of different, um, even the Green River, if you went far enough east, you know, over over by Geneseo area. Um, you know, there's those riparian areas lended themselves to a lot of forested areas. And so that's part of it too. But in a grassland, you know, ecosystem, a lot of times we deer hunters, and for good reason, 
Um, I mean, let's think about where we're shed hunting. We're shed hunting close to a food source, bedding mm-hmm. area close to a food source. And what's the food source usually? Cut corn, you know, or picked corn right. field, right? And and but corn didn't exist for thousands of years in this ecosystem. You know, corn isn't even really technically a real thing. <laughs> it's a right. hybrid. It's a hybrid species, I guess. That I guess you could call it. So it's a hybrid that was. You know, Teosinte is the main, uh, the main uh, species that was used. But there's some speculation that there was another cross in there of another species that it hasn't even been identified. And um, so, point being, and it came from South America. So there was, it wasn't imported. Most of it imported. Yep, and, exactly. Yep. And so there was no corn here in you know, what was now the corn belt and what we know deer to survive on essentially. Um, so what were they eating? They were eating those native plants and, um, you know, the grasses mostly served as the good bedding cover and thermal cover and security cover, but, uh, it was the flowers and especially the legume species, um, which is in the soybean family, you know, things like the prairie clovers and, uh, um, tick trefoils and the bush clover and and on and on there's tons of different legumes that are native those so, those would have been a great food source so when you go and put in you know pollinator habitat you're getting a lot of those natural uh you know forbs that the deer you know are absolutely familiar with eating and get great nutrition from so it's worth it plus it'll include switchgrass in your planning so you'll you'll get that uh security cover and screening factor as well but i I know i know a guy who could definitely hook you up with uh, the seed that you need and help you if you want to custom customize a few screens and stuff where it's just switchgrass i get that too but yeah i was talking to judd too and Oh yeah, general health. Yeah, yep. yep. That's the guy to talk to. Um, uh, it's basically a five-acre field. It's long and narrow, an old, old hay field. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, the more I think about it, maybe I'll go half pure switchgrass and half native. And mm-hmm. I want a little bit both. I'm yep. open-minded, so I'm gonna draw some plans up and even talk to like Chase about that with land management and yep, Judd and give different opinions from different people. Yep, that's trying good. to be open-minded about it. And... Yep, love that. Those are great. Those are great resources. And and yeah, Judd will Judd will definitely take care of you there. And Chase, I already got about one acre in food plot right now. The other four might go two and two on the other stuff. And... Sure. What's your uh, what's what what are you growing in your food plot? Is it more of a late season thing? Yeah, pretty much late season stuff. Um, a lot of brassicas and sure stuff. I got clover strip that goes on the outside along the woods that forms mm, now. Yep, that's smart. Every now and then I do soybeans and fence it off because the deer like to devour them. I thought about trying to do my own <laughs> corn. And it's just like it's a lot of hassle for a little small plot. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, it sounds like you're you're having fun playing around. I love with it. playing in the food plots. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I'm glad it's I'm glad it's uh coming together for you and I'm excited to see how that how that looks when you're done, you know, tweaking it and everything. That'll be and just to see what you end up pulling out of there. But is yeah. this the farm where you shot the uh pie bald? No, 
Well, it isn't actually. Oh, really? Um, no, no. Um, the, the piebald was shot on a buddy's property, and he's got 10 acres with his house dead center in the middle of his property, which I can't stand. <laughs> but it gives me about, I can't hunt the front half because there's another house to the neighbor's house, and I'm not 100 yards, and they don't want me hunting up there. Yep. Even a bow, so I got to hunt the back of his property, which is two to three acres, and I got a almost half acre food plot back there too. So nice. he likes watching it because he can see my food plot. Once the leaves fall, he can see the food plot from his kitchen window. That's cool. His dining room, so he's always watching and see what deer are out there and everything. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So, so we heard in the pick and bones episode just a little bit about the backstory with with um you know, arrowing just a, a once in probably multiple lifetimes kind of buck in that piebald buck. Mm-hmm. Can you just walk us through the whole story now of when you killed that thing? Oh, I believe it was November 4th is when I shot him. Okay. So rut. Yeah, definitely rut action. Um, I was, sitting there going for an afternoon hunt i had to have my boy to wrestling practice but i knew i had time before to go and when i shoot a deer i don't have time to take them so (laughs) um this off to my right about 45 degrees about 35 yards he pops out of the woods really thick and he's right on the fence line there's no fence there but just fence post so he comes into my property and i'm like that's a piebald well no way (laughs) Both the binos. Oh, it's a buck. Little guy, but you know what? I'm like, all right. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? He works over a couple yards. He's about 30 yards now. And he's working this rug. And this tree's right next to a fence post. And he gets his head stuck in there. And I'm like, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> good, five, good five minutes. He is stuck. You know, time flies, but I was looking and he was. Look at my binos. He was literally stuck. On oh, the, man. And I'm like, I'm going to have to get down and shoot this deer no matter what. Yeah. And I still, at this point, I'm still on the fence whether I'm going to shoot him or not. I'm like, I don't know. He's small. I like to try to shoot the mature deer, you know, try yep. to find my four-year-olds and bigger. It's not always antler size. It's age size I go for. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, God, God, I don't know what to do. Probably pops his head free, and you can just tell he's dazed. He's like... <laughs> I was swear so he was cross-eyed. really stuck, huh? Oh, yeah. I was swear he's cross-eyed when he got out of there. He'd <laughs> tell his lightheaded or something, and I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> so he walks uh, head on. So this time, by now I got my bow in my hand. I'm like, okay, well, I think I'll just shoot him. I'm going to shoot him. I haven't shot a buck since 2017. I'm, I'm due. You know, I've done my diligence. I've passed 120 inches, 130 inches, three-year-olds. Yeah, this is probably two-and-a-half-year-old. He's walking head on. I got some great tactic cam footage of him coming in. He comes in straight underneath my stand. You can see when I lower my bow, I look down. You can see I'm looking at him through my footrest. Oh, man. He is straight underneath me. And the wind wasn't my favor. It wasn't a big wind, but just enough to blow it over the hill behind me. Mm -hmm. And he gets out to about six yards, and I'm like, all right, I've practiced this shot, but not this steep. I know i got to aim lower. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, your arrow goes high. Yep. Pull back. I shoot. I'm like, thunk. And I was like, oh, straight mud. I was shot. I had 
adjusted too much, compensate sure. too much. Yep. I swung a gun, so I'm sitting here watching him knock another arrow. I I hold my quiver on at all times. I don't know how people don't do hold with the quiver off. I'm just used to it. Sure. And he goes out to 20 yards, and I just do just not really purple down too loud, but just a little squirrel chirp, and he stopped. Perfectly 20 yards. I've ranged that spot numerous times and had a good flight on my arrow. And he ran towards my buddy's house. So my stand as a uh, direct distance is exactly 100 yards from his house, which doesn't uh-huh. really matter there because he don't care, but it just happens to be 100 yards. Yep. So he, and I hear him crash. I'm like, oh, he's down right there. All right. But then I can hear him coughing. I'm like, okay, so he's not dead. So first thing I do is I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, you home? No, but we're on our way home. I'm like, when you get home, keep your daughters quiet because they're really loud little girls. You know, yeah. like seven and three. And I'm like, just try to keep them quiet. This buck's have about 50 yards, 40, 50 yards from your house. I'm like, oh, you shot one? I was like, yeah. And I said, you'll, you'll, you're going to want to see this. So we, he gets home. I actually hop down on my stand, take the long way out just because I know right where this buck is and get up to the house and he gets home and we can still hear the deer coughing for like uh-huh. 20, 25 minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so my shot was a hair forward, I found out. So mm-hmm. I just clipped the front of the lungs. Mm-hmm. It was enough just to put them down. It wasn't as quick as a kill as I'd like, but sure. it was an ethical shot. And um, So, yeah, we waited. After the last sound, we still waited another half hour. And called my wife. I'm like, hey, you want to come track a deer with me? No, I'll be okay. I didn't tell her what it was. Yeah. So we go down and find the buck. Right, you know, no blood trail. We didn't even look for blood trail. We just went straight to the, where the sound was, flashlights. And as soon as I found him, flashlight, I started recording on my phone and recording, walking up to him, do a little tap on the butt, make sure he's dead. Yep. And I was like amazed by his pattern, and it looks like a lightning bolt. I mean, just branches out. It's not like a typical pie bolt that has the blotches of white. Yeah, yeah. And we, uh, so the daughter's like, oh, let's pick it up and move it. I'm like, timeout. And I talk to my, and my buddies, no, we got to tag it first before we even do anything with it. Yeah. I tag it right away. And I do it in the back leg that's faced up on me right there. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to tag the antlers unless it goes to a processor in Illinois. Okay. Until it's so I just do the back leg because that's the main one. And then we drag it out to the food plot, which is about 20 yards away. And then went up, grabbed my truck, put the headlights on it, did our my trophy pictures, you know. Yeah. He, um, got some good ones for being nighttime and trying sure. to get a seven-year-old to take pictures. It doesn't always work the best, too. <laughs> so I guess me and him. And, but still cute. I guess I'm with her because she's. I'm the deer hunter. I'm the one that kills Santa's deer every year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sounds like a pretty cute. special moment with uh, some was. people that mean a lot to you. And he was thrilled. The landowner was thrilled just because it's on his property and mm-hmm. I always give him steaks or roasts or whatever he wants, you know, for yep. on his property because I don't have to pay him anything. Yep. I got free will on his land whenever I want. And it's a wonderful thing to have another guy I work with. So, Yep, Separate from awesome. my boss, so I hunt two of my guys' properties from work. That's awesome. Great employees. Yeah, yeah, that's um, awesome. 
so you know i started posting pictures the next day and talking about it and about two days later the guy who works here on the phone with dnr and she's asking about me he's oh you're here so i get on the phone with her we're on a first name basis because work relationship and i've just known her for several years and she goes yeah, um where's the tag at i said i kid you not it's underneath buried on the other leg because when we when it was laying down dead, I posted it was on the leg that was facing up. But when I did my hero pictures, it was on the bottom. You couldn't see the tag at all. So oh, she goes, where's tag? I said, I promise you. I said, the landowner and his daughter watched me tag it before he dragged it out to the food plot. All right. I trust you. I said, I said, I swear to God. She goes, you got the harvest number on there? I said, yep. It's all called in. It's all official. Yep. She asked about another, where I shot it, what county, and what area. And then, because another county over, there's a good number of piebald deer and couple albinos too that are well known. Sure. She wanted to make sure it wasn't any of that herd. Sure. And so I sent her a bunch of other pictures, and she's going to send it to a biologist in Illinois to see what the odds of this odds are of this pattern because mm-hmm. of the lightning strike look. And I've always called this buck lightning just because of his pattern. And yeah. I haven't heard back on that yet. So I hope they do come up with something. But all the research I've done, I haven't found another pattern like this. Yeah, that's that's really so, cool. It just adds to the story, you know, that, it does. that unique patterning. Yeah, that's, that, that's it. And, and then what was it? Just a few days later, you uh, tagged another buck from the same tree? Well, yeah. The second, so I went out the night after. Mm-hmm. I shot this one on another property. I have it's a draw spot, and I shot a buck that night. I knew my shot was high. He ducked my arrow. I'd say he's a one thirty-five, one forty-inch eight-pointer. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, but we cracked him for a couple hours. I went back the next day, tracked for another four hours, just grid searching. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, reviewed the shot of my head, called a dog tractor. He goes, he's probably living. And so I let that one go. Four days later, I get a picture of him. I'm like, all right, he's still alive. Hmm. So f- five days after initially shooting the piebald, I uh, was back in the same stand. I was killing time. Didn't plan on seeing anything that day. I, and all of a sudden, I'm only in my stand for 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, here comes this buck. And I'm like, oh, nice buck. He's on my right side. I just happened to clear the shooting lane on my right side this year. I've always left it up. And I'm like, I always see deer on this side and might as well clear it out. Yeah. Grab my bow, turn, and shoot less than 10 seconds from the time I seen him. It's just bam, bam, bam. <laughs> I was thinking 130, 140 inch, eight, nine, 10. I didn't know what he was. Yep. Just had a nice G2 and three on one side. And, um, called my wife and I'm shaking in the stand. She can hear the excitement of my voice. I'm like, I just shot a really nice one. And I know, I knew without a doubt it was going to be my second biggest bow buck. Awesome. And so I go home, pick her up. She's like, I'll track with this one with you. I'm like, okay. You learned your lesson <laughs> last time. <laughs> I said, this one's not a pie ball though. So, yeah. So we go and found him 70 yards away, expired. He was dead even before I got out of the tree. Perfect wow. shot. Um, I couldn't ask for a better shot and he was a little smaller than I had hoped, but I was mad at myself. And then I'm like, Paul, get over it. This is your second biggest buck. 
Yep. Quick ethical kill. He got you excited. Yep. And that's exactly right. And so it took me a day or two, and then I finally stepped out of it and been happier heck that I tagged out in Illinois. And, and you know, two awesome bucks. Well, once in a lifetime, and a buck that most guys are looking for, anyways. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. And the buck that you injured. You, you were telling me earlier tonight that you just saw it today, right? I uh, saw it two days ago, Saturday. Two or, days yeah, ago? Saturday when I was here visiting this area. And he's still and you said around. A, you said another person you know shot him as well. And he yeah, another guy that. that got in on the straw spot had shot him. Also ducked his arrow, but he hit a little farther back. Because wow. my wound is pretty obvious on our trail cam pictures of it. And I helped him tr- track that time, time too. He helped me track. I helped him track. And then a day later, he had gotten cell cam pictures of it, so we knew it was live right away. And I expect it's him to shed already because of the stress, but he's right. tending a doe the other night, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's so crazy, man. He doesn't have any quit in him, does he? I like his will. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool. Well, man, just a excellent deer season. Um, you know, I got it. You know, kind of taking this this full circle back to the the beginning of the of the show where we talked about your battle with COVID and mm-hmm. and uh, just how bleak that got. I think. I mean, imagine if somebody could have just told you while you're going through that. Hey, by fall of 2023. You're gonna have two incredible bucks down. You you will have almost had a third one down, but I would have laughed at him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, just just awesome to see how you've bounced back and been able to enjoy hunting, and how hunting helped get you back mm-hmm. and, much and so. kind of drag you, you know, through that time as as the driving force to to keeping you fighting, and so. Uh, man, that's where, you know, I had this conversation, like I've said it on this podcast before, and I said it in podcasts that I've been interviewed in, you know, when I think a lot of people look at the time we spend hunting as almost like, like, you know, the whole work before play type mindset, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, did you get everything, all your other, you know, T's crossed and I's dotted before you went out to play, you know, before you went out to hunt. And, you know, in, in other words, talking in this context of hunting as um, a hobby, and I think for some, it is just a hobby, you know, like maybe the, the guys that just get together with their friends and family for their gun season traditions, right. you know, one, you know, maybe one or two days a year. And uh, that's all the hunting they care to do. Yeah, you'd probably say, yeah, that guy's hunting for a hobby. But for guys like yourself, guys like me, where we we are just wired to be out there um, hunting in some way, uh, or at least being in nature and and pursuing animals and trying to get to know them better and make them our quarry. Um, I don't think hobby is the right word and I don't think it's, I don't, I think it's lifestyle, you know, and, and I gotta go. I have a call. Okay. Hey, well, well, pause. Yeah. We'll see you. Thanks so much, buddy. I'll end this one. So, uh, as you heard there, Paul had to take off. He got a call. He is a first responder 
it was great uh, talking with with him and uh, hearing his his uh, experiences in the woods and uh, his his experiences through his life in the outdoors. Just a great guy and a longtime listener of this podcast. Uh, just had a, a lot of fun connecting with him through the years. Um, do remember this show is presented by Spartan Forge. Uh, Spartan Forge is just an incredible tool that I take with me everywhere I go, um, both hunting and not hunting. This time of year, I do a lot of um, uh, just dropping pins when I drive by a place that looks really good. Um, I, I mark it, and uh, maybe I'll come back to it. Maybe I won't. Um, this just a few days ago, uh, my son Jonas and I, we went and knocked on a few doors that I marked last year and um, got some sort of permission. Um, hopefully, we'll get some more permission on a couple pieces that looked really, really good. And, uh, you know, to have that tool, to be able to do that so easily, um, that is that is uh, really, really handy. And one of the things that I really love about Spartan Forge is you can mark the properties where you have permission, you can outline them in green and, um, or if you have like conditional permission or do not have permission, it's always good to make sure that you, uh, um, don't, uh, you know, cross the, any of those boundaries, but it's, it's great being able to, um, you know, mark that so clearly and see it right on the map right where you can go and where you can't go and that kind of thing uh but you can get it for yourself you can download the app for free uh or if you want to get all the additional map layers and uh access to some of the additional features like the deer behavior prediction uh, you'll need to get the full version i strongly recommend you do that i do the year-round one of course, you could do the monthly payment if you wanted to, but you'll save some money and you'll have access year-round to the full version of the app um, if you just go ahead and pay for the yearly subscription. So uh, strongly recommend you do that. It will definitely make you a better hunter and a better shed hunter having the intel provided there um, as you go through those different, those different phases of enjoying whitetail deer every year. And then also, if you have any dream hunts, you want to head out west, and uh, or maybe you want to go way up into Alaska. Maybe you got maybe you want to go to Hawaii and do some hunting, or down south, or uh, here in Iowa and chase after whitetails. You need to talk to Alex Gruen of East West Hunts. Alex has been hunt planning and doing tag applications for customers for many years now, and uh, has become very respected in the industry. And he works with all kinds of outfitters and guides to give you the absolute best experience possible. But it all starts with doing a consultation with Alex to let him know what your goals are as a hunter. What are your dream hunts? And uh, what kind of gear you're going to need? And, and, you know, what's a realistic uh, time frame for drawing a tag somewhere? All of that Alex will work through with you. You can request a free consultation. And then if you decide to go with it, uh, Alex's services, which I strongly recommend you do. You can mention you listen to this podcast and that's where you heard about him and you'll save yourself 10%. So make sure you um, go and check out East West Hunts. You can find a link here in the show notes and also in my uh, bio on Instagram. Go to my link tree there and you can find a link as well. 
and uh, a new sponsor of uh, of the show. We've had this uh, this affiliate partnership, but we're kind of ex- extending that a little bit and expanding it a little bit. And uh, they're offering me a discount code for all of my listeners, and that is my medic. Uh, my medic is, in my opinion, the best first aid kit manufacturer and assembler out there. I have one myself. I took it with me on, on my Montana uh, bear hunt, as well as my Nebraska mule deer hunt. And uh, I even keep it in my pack when I'm like doing shed hunting or just hunting around here at home. There's certain safety items you should always have just because... No one ever plans to get into a dangerous circumstance. But if you are stuck in that, you're going to want to have the right equipment to save the day. Don't become a victim to being unprepared. Get yourself a MyMedic first aid kit. And honestly, it gives me a lot of peace of mind at home. I got three little kids running around. I know that if uh, somebody trips and falls and you know gets a bad cut or something like that, um, I'm going to have the equipment on hand to keep them safe until I can get them the medical attention they need uh, to uh, really help. So my medic will buy time and save lives. I strongly recommend you get your own kit. And here's the best part. Because you're a listener of this podcast, if you tell them that you heard about my medic from here by entering the promo code first gen 15 at checkout, first gen fifteen f i r s t g e n, the number fifteen, all one word on all lowercase. You will save yourself fifteen percent uh, when you uh, order something through my medic. So I strongly recommend you do that. And while you're on your hunt, you tag something incredible like a piebald deer. You're gonna want to get it memorialized in a truly excellent manner you want to get it done the right way and uh, the best way to do that is to go to a taxidermist with the kind of uh of you know just reputation i guess you'd say as old barn taxidermy they are the best in the business they have been uh well sam the founder has been doing taxidermy work for like four decades his mounts are incredible i have several in my house and I have a deer hide done by them. I have Euro mounts done by them. I got two awesome shoulder mounts done by them. And I'm about to have a new mule deer uh, uh, hide done by them. I just could not be more happy than the work that is done by Old Barn Taxidermy. And you would be in the same boat if you choose to go with them. Please tell them that I sent you if you do. Uh, you can find a link for them in the show notes as well as in the link tree in my Instagram bio. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into this episode. What a great story with Paul and uh, just so glad for his second chance and how hunting helped with his healing process and the great hunts that he's had since then. Uh, please uh, reach out if you haven't before. I'd love to hear from you. Um, also, if you have not yet left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which I've been seeing a bunch of new reviews out there. Thank you very much, everyone. Great to see those. Um, that really helps spread the word of this podcast. We want to help people as much as we can. Also, um, I'm getting active on the First Gen Hunter website again. I just posted a new uh, article titled Hunt Shed Hunting Tips That Actually Help. 
Um, there's a lot of tips out there. Some are useful, some not so much. And I'm sharing with you the ones that I have found to be the most useful. So you can go to firstgenhunter.com, click on the articles tab and see those new articles there. And uh, hopefully you enjoy them. Well, that's about all I got for you tonight, everyone. Uh, please take care of yourselves. And, uh, you know, you know the drill. Take someone hunting as well. <laughs>